on this episode of New Retina Radio. I spent time in Japan uh, with the Department of Ophthalmology uh, for nine months. I developed a method called rational molecular fragmentation. And I think what the PhD really trains you to do are things that are that are studied in medical school, but not as strongly reinforced. They wanted to see maybe there are scientific ways of understanding human behavior. That and more coming up. New Retina Radio is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. This is Mike Lee at Horton Plaza Park in San Diego, here for the Retina Society 2016 meeting. New Retina Radio is brought to you by Alcon Surgical. Stop by our booth at an upcoming meeting to see how Alcon is advancing vitreoretinal surgery. You're listening to New Retina Radio from New Retina MD and Bryn Mawr Communications. It's undeniable, and hey, I'm stating the obvious here, it's it's extra work. I know, but it's their passion. They love it. Yeah, and, and no matter how you look at it, uh, they're coming out with something valuable. All right, are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. I'm Scott. I'm Rana. This is New Retina Radio. Today, we're covering those extra letters after MD in somebody's name. You got PhD, JD, MBA, MS. Some doctors have so many letters after their names that it looks like alphabet soup. We all know what those letters mean, but we don't know how or if they affect the careers of retina doctors. We'll start with the PhD. Hi, my name is Paul Hahn. I'm an associate at NJ Retina. We're starting with the PhD because it takes so long to get if you earn it in an MD-PhD program. 12 years in total. Which is a significant amount of time. So normally, um, it would be four years of medical school, and then for ophthalmology, it's one year of internship and three years of residency. So eight years total. And to get us to 12? So on top of that, I'd added another four years for the PhD. You can earn an MD-PhD in a combined program like Paul did, or you can earn the MD and PhD separately, but we'll get to that one later. You apply for an MD-PhD um, program out of college, and I didn't know much about it, but similar to the reason that I chose biochemistry, that was just kind of the most challenging of the of the majors at Harvard. For a young applicant, that might be an attractive competition. It's um, a challenging thing to get into. In Paul's case, he knew of no one who had done it. I didn't really know anyone who had done it also, and no one, you know, there's not much precedent, at least back then. I think it was a relatively uncommon thing to do. If you enroll in an MD-PhD program, you take a circuitous route toward the termination of your formal education. Most MD-PhD programs are structured relatively similarly, which is that you do a couple years of med school, usually two years of med school first and then you finish up the PhD, and then you finish up your medical training at the end. Some coursework in an MD-PhD overlaps, so it's not like it's wasted time. Paul detailed the coursework required for his PhD. The first two years of medical school are generally coursework as well, and that coursework includes things like basic pharmacology and microbiology, and those are the types of, uh, of similar courses that you would be taking for a PhD degree also. So generally, you're exempt from that coursework when you're doing the combined degree the second time. A combined MD-PhD saves you time compared with an MD acquired separately from a PhD. They definitely overlap, and because of that, you can shave off a little bit of time. So that covers the MD-PhD combo. Mm -hmm. And you can take another route. It's not as fluid. You can start with a PhD, then get the MD. So let's meet David. Hi, David Almeida from VRS Vitreoretinal Surgery in Minneapolis, Minnesota. David did four years of undergrad at the University of Toronto. 
I have an honors Bachelor of Science, and uh, my thesis was on toxicology. And then pursued a PhD in pharmacologic sciences, which took him overseas. That brought me to Europe, uh, to the University of Szeged in uh, Hungary, uh, out of all places. And that's because my supervisor at the time was in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Toronto, but he was going away for a year in sabbatical. So, um, you know, he said, well, why don't you just come over and do it uh, there with me? And so, you know, that took me to Europe and I lived there for a while. Is that the same as a farm day? Nope, totally different. It's more on the development end of things. A PhD in pharmaceutical sciences is certainly related to medicine, but the content doesn't exactly prepare you for medical school like Paul's training did. Still, like Paul, David finished quickly. So I did the PhD in uh, about three years. Sounds fast, but David credits the nature of the work, which relies on computer models and calculations, with that speed. You know, everything's basically at the quantum level with those types of calculations. So it's literally you, you and a computer. It's almost more computer science than, uh, than chemistry in terms of the, the bench work. Like, I, I never did any bench work. Everything was on the computer. He compared it with a math PhD, which also takes about three years to complete. For example, the kind of experience I was running would be, well, I'll put this structure together, and then I would hit enter, and I would run a, basically quantum chemical calculations, and it would run all night. He'd go home, grab some sleep. Then I'd wake up in the morning and it would be done. I'd say, okay, that didn't work. Let's try this. And so there's always this evolving. So you're almost working 24 hours a day, but not really, because the computer's always working when you're not. Anyway, David finished and knew that if he wanted to create drugs, he needed to go to medical school. It came down to the human dynamics of collaborative pharmaceutical creation. Whenever there would be like, you know, multidisciplinary cross-sectional teams, you know, you'd always have to yield uh, to the medical people. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that they knew all the processes, right? And I never knew any of those. So I thought, hey, man, if I wanted to actually design some good drugs or I have to understand this other side of it, uh, I, have to, I have to, you know, build my skill set around that. And so that's what brought me to med school. He does the med school thing enrolls at Queen's University. In uh, Kingston, Ontario, Canada. And the rest is history. So there we have it. Two doctors with MDs and PhDs who arrived there two very different ways with two very different areas of study. Age-related macular degeneration and looking at iron as a potential cofactor for the pathogenesis of dry AMD. I developed a method called rational molecular fragmentation. But they both agreed that their PhDs came in handy. For David, his background in pharmacologic sciences gives him a deeper understanding of the drugs his patients use. My understanding of, you know, drugs and mechanisms, pharmacodynamics, pharmacokinetics and stuff, it, you know, comes really easy. That training comes in handy while working alongside industry, too. He and industry reps speak the same language. I really enjoy research and I'm still really active, still doing a lot of it, uh, and I'm building really strong relationships with pharma and industry. And I think that said, we, we can connect really quickly because in, I, I understand what their point of what they're trying to do and uh, I can see it from the delivery point as well. Paul has different reasons for finding the PhD useful. I think what the PhD really trains you to do are things that are that are studied in medical school but not as strongly reinforced. And that is to have a scientific mind and a very rigorous uh, way to approach and think about things. He pointed to the words of a former mentor. David Epstein. David passed away in 2014, but Paul says his words still resonate. For a long time, and he really recommended that you use your patients as what he called a clinical laboratory. Um, not to mean that you should experiment on patients, but really use patients to form hypotheses, test those hypotheses, and then reformulate those hypotheses based on those results. Um, and I think that's been a fantastic way to look at things. Paul said that the PhD's tendency to strengthen the muscles in your scientific mind leads to thorough analysis of results. 
Building on David Epstein's advice that you should carefully follow patients' responses to therapy, Paul said, I think it's very important to try to improve yourself, improve your clinical care, and I think if you have that rigorous and standardized way of approaching things, it really helps you to, to, to do better for everybody. Another doctor we spoke with said that his extra degree, in this case a Master of Science degree, reflected the way he viewed medicine. Hi, I'm Scott Walter. I'm a first-year vitreoretinal surgery fellow at the Duke Eye Center. He's in year two of fellowship now. Anyway, he used a particularly eloquent phrasing to describe how he viewed science from a young age. Science was, um, was sort of the most powerful epistemological tool um, or intellectual framework with which to understand the world. He realized this in his first year of undergrad at Reed College. A small liberal arts college in Portland, Oregon. He transferred. I ended up uh, transferring to Stanford, uh, which uh, was another wonderful place to study. Totally different um, intellectual climate than uh, Reed. His major at Stanford wasn't exactly pre-med. I ended up um, gravitating towards this very unusual department called the Department of Anthropological Sciences. Department of Anthropological Sciences. Yeah, I know. Uh, he described it as anthropology meets genetics. It was um, a sort of comprehensive scientific approach to all sorts of anthropological questions. There's that concept again, the scientific approach. They wanted to see maybe there are scientific ways of understanding human behavior, of understanding human ecological um, you know, constraints that uh, affect human behavior. Um, at looking at medical anthropology and all sorts of, um, you know, new kinds of questions that might be answered using a scientific framework. Like Paul's and David's training, Scott's training focused on reinforcing the scientific method, especially in scenarios where using the scientific method was unusual. I think it was, you know, a really wonderful place to be as a pre-medical student because you were constantly, you know, forced to uh, think about how might we apply the scientific method to questions that most people thought, you know, were not really scientific kinds of questions. If anything, the combination of an undergrad career that kicked off in the liberal arts and then drew him toward anthropological sciences and then eventually retina taught Scott a concept that underpins his perspective on the intersection of science and philosophy. For me, science is a philosophy of knowing, you know, science is a a way in which, you know, we um, we evaluate our own thoughts. It's just such a, such a powerful um, framework to understand the world. We'll be back after a short break, but when we do come back, we've got more Alphabet Soup talk, MBAs, and law degrees. Hang tight. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Tom Albini outside the convention center uh, in Seattle, Washington at this year's Arvo meeting. New Retina Radio is brought to you by VBS5, the fifth annual meeting of the Vit Buckle Society, which will take place in April of 2017 in Las Vegas, Nevada. The Vit Buckle meeting is a great place to meet colleagues, fellows, and industry and talk about new techniques and strategies in retina. Visit us at vitbucklesociety.org for more information. 
New Retina Radio is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. This is Mike Lee here at the bowling tournament during the final night of the Retina Fellows Forum here in Chicago. New Retina Radio is brought to you by Alcon. Stop by our booth at an upcoming meeting to see how Alcon is taking surgical retina into the future. All right, let's get back to the program. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. We'll see. Scott? Rana? Before the break, we spoke with three retina doctors. One pursued a combined MD-PhD, and the other two received other degrees before grabbing their MD. One picked up a Master of Science degree, the other a PhD, which means that all three of the doctors we interviewed earned degrees that were related to science in some way. Even if those degrees were only tangentially related to medicine, like Scott's degree in anthropological sciences, they still strengthened the scientific instincts of a future retina specialist. Now, for the second half of this episode, we're moving from science degrees to degrees that have nothing to do with science or medicine, the JD and the MBA. Let's meet Derek. Hi, I'm Derek Kunimoto. I am a co-managing partner at Retinal Consultants of Arizona. Derek has a law degree, also known as a Juris Doctorate or a JD. His educational career started off normally enough. I went to Harvard, graduated uh, with a major in biology, and uh, did a lot of things that all pre-med Majors do. He was accepted to medical school, and then things took a different turn. I received the Rhodes Scholarship. I'm sure you've heard of it, but as a reminder, it's a postgraduate scholarship awarded by the University of Oxford. Med school said that they'd save him a space. I had a spot at Harvard Medical School. Derek thought about getting a PhD at Oxford, but decided against it. On that scholarship, uh, I was able to choose whatever field of study I wanted. Here was an opportunity, a chance to take a mental vacation from medicine while still exercising his mind. And at that point, I thought, should I study what I've already studied and what I'm going to continue to do in my profession, professional life, or should I do something completely different that simply holds intellectual interest to me? The decision was easy. It was a no-brainer. He went toward another interest he had. So I, I studied law there. I, I got a law degree, um, a completely different way of viewing the world. but but I'm very happy that I did it. To be clear, this is a British law degree, not an American one, but Derek said that those details don't really matter for the profession that he's in. American law is based on English common law. The law practice was never what he wanted anyway. Remember, Harvard Medical School had a spot with his name on it. I, I knew this going into it that I wasn't planning on practicing. Derek finishes med school and even adds a fifth year so that he can do some work abroad. I did research at an eye institute in India. For three months, I spent time in Japan uh, with the Department of Ophthalmology uh, for nine months. And then a twist. He gets recruited to McKinsey & Company, a corporate consulting firm, while he's a medical intern. A lot of consulting companies recruited very strongly um, out, of, out of both um, our Rhodes class as well as out of Oxford. McKinsey & Company consults for various corporate clients. They needed to find new talent, so they looked outside of the traditional MBA pool. Uh, they looked for PhD candidates, um, JDs, um, MDs, so people that were pursuing um, higher degrees that excelled in their, in their respective graduate schools and, and were open to learn ways of consulting. Derek used his elective time and vacation time to allow McKinsey to fly him to Spain for a few months for a crash course in business school. What's called a mini MBA. After medical internship, the road to becoming a practicing retina surgeon took yet another turn. I applied for and took a job with McKinsey and Company. He worked as a corporate consultant for two years. Then he finishes ophthalmology and retina training. It's a long road. 
Remember how we talked about how Paul's combined MD-PhD saved him about two years by combining some common coursework? They definitely overlap, and because of that, you can shave off a little bit of time. Derek's path did not allow him to save any time. So by the time all was said and done, I think while most people finish up at age 32 after fellowship, I was 37 to 38 at that time. Some time lost then, but for good reason. Earning a JD requires a logical mindset that is not the scientific method. In that sense, his background in law and even his work in consulting does not affect his day-to-day medical judgment. I don't know that I approach diabetic tractional retinal detachment any differently than someone who's gone straight through. A hemorrhage is a hemorrhage is a hemorrhage, in other words. But a background in business, both from a legal standpoint and a career standpoint, give Derek perspective others may not have. The structure of our of our business and um, the legal framework of our business, the medical malpractice issues, the liability issues. His understanding of non-clinical issues is grounded in the work of academics and practical experience. I think that I have a different framework to come from, and it's only by you know spending hundreds and hundreds of hours reading arcane cases and, and reading about outcomes and, and the legal justification or rationale for these that, that I would even have that. Derek said he enjoyed being a medical student, but that it was largely a means to an end. While I enjoyed studies and I enjoyed being a student, um, that was more the path to get to where I was in medicine. The JD and the experiences abroad, however, were different. It's fair to call Derek's law degree and non-medical professional experiences manifestations of his interests, rather than experience cultivated to gain direct knowledge in his field. The other stuff, all the other things we talked about, doing the law degree, studying abroad, that is the life experiences which help broaden um, my experience and um, just, I think, give, give, has given me a, a different, uh, different outlook. Indeed, in Derek's estimation, having a JD or corporate experience gives you few advantages when looking for a job. Everybody out there has something unique about them. I think those unique things help get you noticed and get you in the door. But after that, everyone's on, on uh, you know, a level playing field because in the end, it's not just about qualifications. It's not just about experiences that one's had. It's, it's about how you interact with people, how, how you respect others around you. Derek's holistic understanding of his JD and corporate consulting experience are refreshing and humble. Still, we can't discount the very practical effect that they have. Derek Kunamoto, managing partner at Retina Consultants of Arizona, also happens to have a JD from Oxford. It's a two-for-one deal. Yeah, and the corporate consulting experience, it's more like a three-for-one deal. Good point. And, you know, corporate consulting concerns are usually reserved for people with MBA degrees. Mm-hmm. And luckily, one of our interview subjects has one of them, too. So we, we go back to David. He already had his PhD in pharmacologic sciences, and then he was working on the MD, knowing that he needed an MD if he was going to design drugs, because the MDs are the experts in panel discussions. But it didn't take long for him to grow frustrated with hospital systems. The, the degree of uh, how, how hospitals and how healthcare was being administered in terms of resource utilization started to really bother me. It, it, I found that the administrative process, the decision-making analysis, how things were being uh, allocated and how decisions were made to what was covered was not was absolutely insane. Like any good medical student, he turned to his mentors for advice. I had good mentors at the time that said, well, you know what, Here, here's the problem. To speak to that 
administrative side of medicine, you really need uh, a, an MBA. You need to have some sort of a skill set that can help you communicate that. You see, he was juggling two passions, medicine and complex business systems. But he still wanted to design drugs. He decided that earning an MBA must be done while getting the MD. I did an MBA with George Washington University in Washington, D.C. that allowed a part-time so I did it over two years during my last two years of med, of med school, during my clerkship years. I assume that he ended up using the MBA to address systemic failures in distribution of care and like administrative issues at the hospital? Uh, not at all, actually. No, because see, then, then things changed again. For someone with interests as varied as his, David was in the right place at the right time. Ophthalmology, early 2010s. I, I do an ophthalmology elective. Keep in mind, this is still at Queen's University. I'm like, oh man, this is amazing. Like, this is really fun. He loves it. They're d doing wonderful surgery. They got these fun clinics. This was 2012. The anti-VEGF boom's in full effect. So innovation is just like going crazy in ophthalmology and red in the particular. Seem like the perfect match. I'm like, whoa, you know, this actually has everything here that I was kind of looking for. Does he use the MBA? Uh, sort of. Not as much as he uses the PhD. And... Certainly not as much as our other interview subjects use the knowledge they gain from their degrees. David thinks that's because the degree offers a survey in a number of business specialties, but no concentration in a particular one. I always find that the MBA is kind of like a funny degree because it's a basic skill set, but it's very generalized, right? Because you take courses in accounting and human resources and logistics and operations management, supply chain. The courses are short. Too short, really, to delve into topics in a meaningful way, he said. I'm not an expert in any part of it, and so I don't think I use it the way it was intended, perhaps. It did come in handy once, though, on the interview trail. There was one other person with an MBA at VRS in Minneapolis where he now practices, and they could talk shop right from the get-go. When I interviewed, we hit it off exactly from that point of view, because you can contribute uh, significantly along those, uh, those lines of thought. So it's not that the MBA was a waste of time, it's just that David didn't use it how he thought he would. There seems to be a pattern here. Despite the fact that some of our interview subjects did not use their degrees as they intended, they're still happy that they earned them. Derek said that if nothing else, it's life experience. I would put both law and the time I was abroad in a similar category. Which is to say that they aren't the usual experiences one earns in medical school. I mean, much like the way a junior year abroad would be, except, you know, I did that a little later in life. So I, I think, you know, in some ways it's a little more valuable. I could do more things and, and experience other things. David thinks there are pros and cons to earning an extra degree, or in his case, two. I think on the idealistic side, on the humanitarian or humanistic side, there's, you know, investing in your knowledge or your education is always, you know, always a worthwhile goal. But it comes at a price. You lose time and... There's an opportunity cost, there's a debt cost. He thinks that degrees should be driven by questions, not by desires to rack up more letters behind your name. If it can happen organically, like I always felt with me, like, you know, there was a, a bigger question that needed to get answered with a certain skill set, and then education provided a, a steadfast route to that answer. So if you have something similar, then, then I think that's a viable way to approach it. Certainly some impressive work, and we look forward to seeing what some of the young docs in this episode do with their unique educations. Absolutely. And special thanks to Derek Kunimoto, Paul Hahn, David Almeida, and Scott Walter for this episode. I'm Scott Criswanis. I'm Rana Jaraha. See you next time. Bye. Press 2 to play new messages. Hello, Scott. Paul Hahn here to read the credits. Here it goes.
New Retina Radio is a production of Bryn Mawr Communications and New Retina MD. The show is produced by Scott Kruzwanis, with help from Rana Jaraha and Rachel Kagan. The show is recorded, mixed, and edited by Greg Notstein. Our staff includes Dave Levine, Megan Beiser, Elisa D'Amato, Laura Geis, Julie Kassab, Kira Mazurik, Meredith Pollock, and MJ Stewart. Our publisher is Janet Burke. For advertising questions, contact us at newretinaradio at bmctoday.com. That's all. Chat later. End of messages. Hey there, listeners. This is Scott outside of the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, PA. New Retina Radio is brought to you by the New Retina MD app, available for smartphone and tablet. Search New Retina MD in the App Store, download the app, select the issue you want to read, and voila, you've got Retina on the go. Inside, you'll find exclusive content, including video meeting coverage from iTube.net, news updates, and social media opportunities.